Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 29. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter 29. The Smallpox Hut. When we arrived at that hut at mid-afternoon, we saw no signs of life about it. The field nearby had been denuded of its crop some time before, and had a skinned look, so exhaustively had it been harvested and gleaned. Fences, sheds, everything had a ruined look, and were eloquent of poverty. No animal was around anywhere, no living thing in sight. The stillness was awful. It was like the stillness of death. The cabin was a one-story one whose thatch was black with age and ragged from lack of repair. The door stood a trifle ajar. We approached it stealthily, on tiptoe and at half-breath, for that is the way one's feeling makes him do at such a time. The king knocked. We waited. No answer. Knocked again. No answer. I pushed the door softly open and looked in. I made out some dim forms, and a woman started up from the ground and stared at me, as one does who is awakened from sleep. Presently she found her voice. "'Have mercy,' she pleaded. "'All is taken. Nothing is left.' "'I have not come to take anything, poor woman.' "'You are not a priest?' "'No.' "'Nor come not from the lord of the manor?' "'No. I am a stranger.' "'Oh!' then for the fear of god who who visits with misery and death such as be harmless tarry not here but fly this place is under his curse and his churches let me come in and help you you are sick and in trouble i was better used to the dim light now i could see her hollow eyes fixed upon me i could see how emaciated she was i tell you the place is under the church's ban save yourself and go before some stragglers see thee here and report it give yourself no trouble about me i don't care anything for the church's curse let me help you now all good spirits if there be any such bless thee for that word would god i had a sup of water but hold hold forget i said it and fly for there is that here that even he that feareth not the church must fear this disease whereof we die leave us thou brave good stranger and take with thee such whole and sincere blessing as them that be accursed can give but before this i had picked up a wooden bowl and was rushing past the king on my way to the brook it was ten yards away when i got back and entered the king was within and was opening the shutter that closed the window-hole to let in air and light. The place was full of a foul stench. I put the bowl to the woman's lips, and as she gripped it with her eager talons the shutter came open, and a strong light flooded her face. Smallpox! I sprang to the king and said in his ear, 
out of the door on the instant sire the woman is dying of that disease that wasted the skirts of camelot two years ago he did not budge of a truth i shall remain and likewise help i whispered again king it must not be you must go ye mean well and ye speak not unwisely but it were shame that a king should know fear and shame that belted knight should withhold his hand where be such as need succor peace i will not go it is you who must go the church's ban is not upon me but it forbiddeth you to be here and she will deal with you with a heavy hand and word come to her of your trespass it was a desperate place for him to be in and might cost him his life but it was no use to argue with him if he considered his knightly honor at stake here that was the end of argument he would stay and nothing could prevent it i was aware of that and so i dropped the subject the woman spoke fair sir of your kindness will ye climb the ladder there and bring me news of what ye find be not afraid to report for times can come when even a mother's heart is past breaking being already broke abide said the king and give the woman to eat i will go and he put down the knapsack i turned to start but the king had already started he halted and looked down upon a man who lay in a dim light and had not noticed us thus far or spoken is this your husband the king asked yes is he asleep god be thanked for that one charity yes these three hours where shall i pay to the full my gratitude for my heart is bursting with it for that sleep he sleepeth now i said we will be careful we will not wake him ah no that ye will not for he is dead dead yes what triumph it is to know it none can harm him none insult him more he is in heaven now and happy or if not there he bides in hell and is content for in that place he will find neither abbot nor yet bishop we were boy and girl together we were man and wife these five and twenty years and never separated till this day think how long that is to love and suffer together this morning was he out of his mind and in his fancy we were boy and girl again and wandering in the happy fields and so in that innocent clad converse wandered he far and farther still lightly gossiping and entered into those other fields we know not of and was shut away from mortal sight and so there was no parting for in his fancy i went with him he knew not but i went with him my hand in his my young soft hand not this withered claw ah yes to go and know it not to separate and know it not how could one go peacefuller than that it was his reward for a cruel life patiently borne there was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was it was the king descending i could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other he came forward into the light upon his breast lay a slender girl of fifteen she was but half conscious she was dying of smallpox here was heroism and its last and loftiest possibility its utmost summit this was challenging death in the open field unarmed with all the odds against the challenger no reward set upon the contest and no admiring world in silks and cloth of gold to gaze and applaud and yet the king's bearing was as serenely brave 
as it had always been in those cheaper contests where knight meets knight in equal fight and clothed in protecting steel he was great now sublimely great the rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have an addition i would see to that and it would not be a mailed king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest it would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms that a peasant mother might look her last upon her child and be comforted he laid the girl down by her mother who poured out endearments and caresses from an overflowing heart and one could detect a flickering faint light of response in the child's eyes but that was all the mother hung over her kissing her petting her and imploring her to speak but the lips only moved and no sound came i snatched my liquor flask from my knapsack and the woman forbade me and said no she does not suffer it is better so it might bring her back to life none that be so good and kind as ye are would do her that cruel hurt for look you what is left to live for her brothers are gone her father is gone her mother goeth the church's curse is upon her and none may shelter or befriend her even though she lay perishing in the road she is desolate i have not asked you good heart if her sister be still on live here overhead i had no need ye had gone back else and not left the poor thing forsaken she lieth at peace interrupted the king in a subdued voice i would not change it how rich is this day in happiness ah my annis thou shalt join thy sister soon thou art on thy way and these be merciful friends that will not hinder and so she fell to murmuring and cooing over the girl again and softly stroking her face and hair and kissing her and calling her by endearing names but there was scarcely sign of response now in the glazing eyes i saw tears well from the king's eyes and trickle down his face the woman noticed them too and said ah i know that sign thou'st a wife at home poor soul and you and she have gone hungry to bed many's the time that the little ones might have your crust you know what poverty is and the daily insults of your betters and the heavy hand of the church and the king the king winced under this accidental home shot but kept still he was learning his part and he was playing it well too for a pretty dull beginner i struck up a diversion i offered the woman food and liquor but she refused both she would allow nothing to come between her and the release of death then i slipped away and brought the dead child from aloft and laid it by her this broke her down again and there was another scene that was full of heartbreak by and by i made another diversion and beguiled her to sketch her story ye know it well yourselves having suffered it for truly none of our condition in britain escape it it is the old weary tale we fought and struggled and succeeded meaning by success that we lived and did not die more than that is not to be claimed no troubles came that we could not outlive till this year brought them then came they all at once as one might say and overwhelmed us years ago the lord of the manor planted certain fruit trees on our farm in the best part of it too a grievous wrong and shame but it was his right interrupted the king none denieth that indeed and the law mean anything what is the lord's is his and what is mine 
is his also our farm was ours by lease therefore twas likewise his to do with as he would some little time ago three of those trees were found hewn down our three grown sons ran frightened to report the crime well in his lordship's dungeon there they lie who saith there shall they lie and rot till they confess they have naught to confess being innocent wherefore there will they remain until they die ye know that right well i ween think how this left us a man a woman and two children to gather a crop that was planted by so much greater force yes and protected night and day from pigeons and prowling animals that be sacred and must not be hurt by any of our sort when my lord's crop was nearly ready for the harvest so also was ours when his bell rang to call us to his fields to harvest his crop for nothing he would not allow that i and my two girls should count for our three captive sons but for only two of them so for the lacking one were we daily fined all this time our own crop was perishing through neglect and so both the priest and his lordship fined us because their shares of it were suffering through damage in the end the fines ate up our crop and they took it all they took it all and made us harvest it for them without pay or food and we are starving then the worst came when i being out of my mind with hunger and loss of my boys and grief to see my husband and my little maids in rags and misery and despair uttered a deep blasphemy oh a thousand of them against the church and the church's ways it was ten days ago i had fallen sick with this disease and it was to the priest i said the words for he was come to chide me for lack of due humility under the chastening hand of god he carried my trespass to his betters i was stubborn wherefore presently upon my head and upon all heads that were dear to me fell the curse of rome End of chapter 29chapter thirty this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter thirty the tragedy of the manor house at midnight all was over and we sat in the presence of four corpses we covered them with such rags as we could find, and started away, fastening the door behind us. Their home must be these people's grave, for they could not have Christian burial, or be admitted to consecrated ground. They were as dogs, wild beasts, lepers, and no soul that valued its hope of eternal life would throw it away by meddling in any sort with these rebuked and smitten outcasts we had not moved four steps when i caught a sound as of footsteps upon gravel my heart flew to my throat we must not be seen coming from that house i plucked at the king's robe and we drew back and took shelter behind a corner of the cabin now we are safe i said but it was a close call so to speak if the night had been lighter he might have seen us no doubt he seemed to be so near mayhap it is but a beast and not a man at all true but man or beast it would be wise to stay here a minute and let it get by and out of the way hark it cometh hither true again 
the step was coming toward us straight toward the hut it must be a beast then and we might as well have saved our trepidation i was going to step out but the king laid his hand upon my arm there was a moment of silence then we heard a soft knock on the cabin door it made me shiver presently the knock was repeated and then we heard these words in a guarded voice mother father open we have got free and we bring news to pale your cheeks but glad your hearts and we may not tarry but must fly and but they answer not mother father i drew the king toward the other end of the hut and whispered come now we can get to the road the king hesitated was going to demur but just then we heard the door give way and knew that those desolate men were in the presence of their dead come my liege in a moment they will strike a light and then will follow that which it would break your heart to hear he did not hesitate this time the moment we were in the road i ran and after a moment he threw dignity aside and followed i did not want to think of what was happening in the hut i couldn't bear it i wanted to drive it out of my mind so i struck into the first subject that lay under that one in my mind i have had the disease those people died of and so have nothing to fear but if you have not had it also he broke in upon me to say he was in trouble and it was his conscience that was troubling him these young men have got free they say but how it is not likely that their lord hath set them free oh no i make no doubt they escaped that is my trouble i have a fear that this is so and your suspicion doth confirm it you having the same fear i should not call it by that name though i do suspect that they escaped but if they did i am not sorry certainly i am not sorry i, I think but what is it what is there for one to be troubled about if they did escape then are we bound in duty to lay hands upon them and deliver them again to their lord for it is not seemly that one of his quality should suffer a so insolent and high-handed outrage from persons of their base degree there it was again he could see only one side of it he was born so educated so his veins were full of ancestral blood that was rotten with this sort of unconscious brutality brought down by inheritance from a long procession of hearts that had each done its share toward poisoning the stream to imprison these men without proof and starve their kindred was no harm for they were merely peasants and the subject to the will and pleasure of their lord no matter what fearful form it might take but for these men to break out of unjust captivity was insult and outrage and a thing not to be countenanced by any conscientious person who knew his duty to his sacred caste i worked more than half an hour before i got him to change the subject and even then an outside matter did it for me this was a something which caught our eyes as we struck the summit of a small hill a red glow a good way off that's a fire said i fires interested me considerably because i was getting a good deal of insurance business started and was also training some horses and building some steam fire engines with an eye to be a paid fire department by and by the priests opposed both my fire and life insurance on the ground that it was an insolent attempt to hinder the decrees of god and if you pointed out that they did not hinder the decrees in the least but only modified the hard consequences of them if you took out policies and had luck they retorted that that was gambling against the decrees of god and was just as bad so they managed to damage those industries more or less but i got even on my accident business as a rule a knight is a lummox and sometimes even a labrick 
and hence open to pretty poor arguments when they come glibly from a superstition-monger but even he could see the practical side of a thing once in a while and so of late you couldn't clean up a tournament and pile the result without finding one of my accident tickets in every helmet we stood there a while in the thick darkness and stillness looking toward the red blur in the distance and trying to make out the meaning of a far-away murmur that rose and fell fitfully on the night sometimes it swelled up and for a moment seemed less remote but when we were hopefully expecting it to betray its cause and nature it dulled and sank again carrying its mystery with it we started down the hill in its direction and the winding road plunged us at once into almost solid darkness darkness that was packed and crammed in between two tall forest walls we groped along down for half a mile perhaps that murmur growing more and more distinct all the time the coming storm threatening more and more with now and then a little shiver of wind a faint show of lightning and dull grumblings of distant thunder i was in the lead i ran against something a soft heavy something which gave slightly to the impulse of my weight at the same moment the lightning glared out and within a foot of my face was the writhing face of a man who was hanging from the limb of a tree that is it seemed to be writhing but it was not it was a gruesome sight straightway there was an ear-splitting explosion of thunder and the bottom of heaven fell out the rain poured down in a deluge no matter we must try to cut this man down on the chance that there might be life in him yet mustn't we the lightning came quick and sharp now and the place was alternately noonday and midnight one moment the man would be hanging before me in an intense light and the next he was blotted out again in the darkness i told the king we must cut him down the king at once objected if he hanged himself he was willing to lose him property to his lord so let him be if others hanged him belike they had the right let him hang but but me no buts but even leave him as he is and for yet another reason when the lightning cometh again there look abroad two others hanging within fifty yards of us it is not weather meet for doing useless courtesies unto dead folk they are past thanking you come it is unprofitable to tarry here there was reason in what he said so we moved on within the next mile we counted six more hanging forms by the blaze of the lightning and altogether it was a grisly excursion that murmur was a murmur no longer it was a roar a roar of men's voices a man came flying by now dimly through the darkness and other men chasing him they disappeared presently another case of the kind occurred and then another and another then a sudden turn of the road brought us in sight of that fire it was a large manor-house and little or nothing was left of it and everywhere men were flying and other men raging after them in pursuit i warned the king that this was not a safe place for strangers we would better get away from the light until matters should improve we stepped back a little and hid in the edge of the wood from this hiding-place we saw both men and women hunted by the mob the fearful work went on until nearly dawn then the fire being out and the storm spent the voices and flying footsteps presently ceased and darkness and stillness reigned again we ventured out and hurried cautiously away and although we were worn out and sleepy we kept on until we had put this place some miles behind us then we asked hospitably at the hut of a charcoal burner and got what was to be had 
A woman was up and about, but the man was still asleep on a straw shakedown on the clay floor. The woman seemed uneasy until I explained that we were travelers and had lost our way and been wandering in the woods all night. She became talkative, then, and asked if we had heard of the terrible goings-on at the manor-house of Ablasur. Yes, we had heard of them, but what we wanted now was rest and sleep. The king broke in. "'Sell us the house, and take yourselves away, for we be perilous company, being late come from people that died of the spotted death.' It was good of him, but unnecessary. One of the commonest decorations of the nation was the waffle-iron face. I had early noticed that the woman and her husband were both so decorated. She made us entirely welcome, and had no fears, and plainly she was immensely impressed by the king's proposition, for, of course, it was a good deal of an event in her life to run across a person of the king's humble appearance who was ready to buy a man's house for the sake of a night's lodging. It gave her a large respect for us, and she strained the lean possibilities of her hovel to the utmost to make us comfortable. We slept till far into the afternoon, and then got up hungry enough to make cotter fare quite palatable to the king, the more particularly as it was scant in quantity, and also in variety. It consisted solely of onions, salt, and the national black bread made out of horse-feed. The woman told us about the affair the evening before. At ten or eleven at night, when everybody was in bed, the manor-house burnt into flames. The countryside swarmed to the rescue, and the family were saved, with one exception, the master. He did not appear. Everybody was frantic over this loss, and two brave yeomen sacrificed their lives in ransacking the burning-house seeking that valuable personage. But after a while he was found what was left of him, which was his corpse. It was in a copse three hundred yards away, bound, gagged, stabbed in a dozen places. Who had done this? Suspicion fell upon a humble family in the neighborhood who had been lately treated with particular harshness by the baron, and from these people the suspicion easily extended itself to their relatives and familiars. A suspicion was enough. My lord's liveried retainers proclaimed an instant crusade against these people, and were promptly joined by the community in general. The woman's husband had been active with the mob, and had not returned home until nearly dawn. He was gone now to find out what the general result had been. While we were still talking, he came back from his quest. His report was revolting enough. Eighteen persons hanged or butchered, and two yeomen and thirteen prisoners lost in the fire. And how many prisoners were there altogether in the vaults? Thirteen. Then every one of them was lost? Yes all. But the people arrived in time to save the family. How is it they could save none of the prisoners? The man looked puzzled, and said, "'Would one unlock the vaults at such a time? Marry, some would have escaped.' "'Then you mean that nobody did unlock them?' "'None went near them, either to lock or unlock. It standeth to reason that the bolts were fast. Wherefore it was only needful to establish a watch, so that if any broke the bonds he might not escape but be taken.' none were taken. Nay, the less, three did escape, said the king, and ye will do well to publish it, and set justice upon their track, for these murthered the baron and fired the house. I was just expecting he would come out with that. For a moment the man and his wife showed an eager interest in this news, and an impatience to go out and spread it. Then a sudden something else betrayed itself in their faces, and they began to ask questions. I answered the questions myself, and narrowly watched the effects produced. I was soon satisfied that the knowledge of who these three prisoners were 
had somehow changed the atmosphere. That our host's continued eagerness to go and spread the news was now only pretended and not real. The king did not notice the change, and I was glad of that. I worked the conversation around toward other details of the night's proceedings, and noted that these people were relieved to have it take that direction. The painful thing observable about all this business was the alacrity with which this oppressed community had turned their cruel hands against their own class in the interest of the common oppressor. This man and woman seemed to feel that in a quarrel between a person of their own class and his lord, it was the natural and proper and rightful thing for that poor devil's whole caste to side with the master and fight his battle for him, without ever stopping to inquire into the rights or wrongs of the matter. This man had been out helping to hang his neighbors, and had done his work with zeal, and yet was aware that there was nothing against them but a mere suspicion, with nothing back of it describable as evidence. Still, neither he nor his wife seemed to see anything horrible about it. This was depressing to a man with the dream of a republic in his head. It reminded me of a time thirteen centuries away when the poor whites of our South, who were always despised and frequently insulted by the slave-lords around them, and who owed their base condition simply to the presence of slavery in their midst, were yet pusillanimously ready to side with the slave-lords in all political moves for the upholding and perpetuating of slavery and did also finally shoulder their muskets and pour out their lives in an effort to prevent the destruction of that very institution which degraded them and there was only one redeeming feature connected with that pitiful piece of history and that was that secretly the poor white did detest the slave lord and did feel his own shame that feeling was not brought to the surface but the fact that it was there and could have been brought out under favoring circumstances was something in fact, it was enough, for it showed that a man is at bottom a man, after all, even if it doesn't show on the outside. Well, as it turned out, this charcoal-burner was just the twin of the southern poor white of the far future. The king presently showed impatience, and said, "'And ye prattle here all the day, justice will miscarry. Think ye the criminals will abide in their father's house? They are fleeing. They are not waiting.' You should look to it that a party of horse be set upon their track." The woman paled slightly, but quite perceptibly, and the man looked flustered and irresolute. I said, "'Come, friend, I will walk a little way with you, and explain which direction I think they would try to take. If they were merely resistors of the gabelle, or some kindred absurdity, I would try to protect them from capture. But when men murder a person of high degree, and likewise burn his house, that is another matter.' The last remark was for the king to quiet him. On the road the man pulled his resolution together, and began the march with a steady gait, but there was no eagerness in it. By and by I said, "'What relation were these men to you? Cousins?' He turned, as white as his layer of charcoal would let him, and stopped, trembling. "'Ah, oh, my God! How know ye that?' "'I didn't know it. It was a chance guess. Poor lads, they are lost, and good lads they were, too.' Were you actually going yonder to tell on them?" He didn't quite know how to take that, but he said hesitatingly, "'Yes. Then I think you are a damn scoundrel.' It made him as glad as if I had called him an angel. "'Say the good words again, brother, for surely you mean that you would not betray me, and I failed of my duty.' "'Duty? There's no duty in the matter except the duty to keep still and let those men get away. 
they've done a righteous deed.' He looked pleased, pleased and touched with apprehension at the same time. He looked up and down the road to see that no one was coming, and then said in a cautious voice, "'From what land come you, brother, that you speak such perilous words, and seem not to be afraid?' "'They are not perilous words when spoken to one of my own caste, I take it. You would not tell anybody I said them.' "'I? I would be drawn asunder by wild horses first. Well, then, let me say my say. I have no fears of your repeating it. I think the devil's work has been done last night upon those innocent poor people. That old baron got only what he deserved. If I had my way, all his kind should have the same luck." Fear and depression vanished from the man's manner, and gratefulness and a brave animation took their place. Even though you be a spy, and your words a trap for my undoing, yet are they such refreshment that to hear them again, and others like to them, I would go to the gallows happy, as having had one good feast at least in a starved life. And I will say my say now, and ye may report it, if ye be so minded. I helped to hang my neighbors, for that it were peril to my own life to show lack of zeal in the master's cause. The others helped for none other reason. All rejoice to-day that he is dead, but all do go about seemingly sorrowing and shedding the hypocrite's tear, for in that lies safety. I have said the words, I have said the words, the only ones that have ever tasted good in my mouth, and the reward of that taste is sufficient. Lead on, and you will, be it even to the scaffold, for I am ready. There it was, you see, a man is a man at bottom. Whole ages of abuse and oppression cannot crush the manhood clear out of him. Whoever thinks it a mistake is himself mistaken. Yes, there is plenty good enough material for a republic in the most degraded people that ever existed, even the Russians, plenty of manhood in them, even in the Germans, if one could but force it out of its timid and suspicious privacy, to overthrow and trample in the mud any throne that ever was set up, and any nobility that ever supported it. We should see certain things yet, let us hope and believe. First, a modified monarchy, till Arthur's days were done, then the destruction of the throne, nobility abolished, every member of it bound out to some useful trade, universal suffrage instituted, and the whole government placed in the hands of the men and women of the nation there to remain. Yes, there was no occasion to give up my dream yet a while. End of chapter 30、31. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter 31. Marco. We strolled along in a sufficiently indolent fashion now, and talked. We must dispose of about the amount of time it ought to take to go to the little hamlet of Ablesor, and put justice on the track of those murderers, and get back home again. And, meantime, I had an auxiliary interest, which had never paled yet, never lost its novelty for me, since I had been in Arthur's kingdom. The behavior, born of nice and exact subdivisions of caste, of chance passers-by toward each other. Toward the shaven monk who trudged along with his cowl tilted back, and the sweat washing down his fat jowls, the coal-burner was deeply reverent. To the gentleman he was abject, 
with the small farmer and the free mechanic he was cordial and gossipy and when a slave passed by with a countenance respectfully lowered this chap's nose was in the air he couldn't even see him well there are times when one would like to hang the whole human race and finish the farce presently we struck an incident a small mob of half-naked boys and girls came tearing out of the woods scared and shrieking the eldest among them were not more than twelve or fourteen years old they implored help but they were so beside themselves that we couldn't make out what the matter was however we plunged into the wood they scurrying in the lead and the trouble was quickly revealed they had hanged a little fellow with a bark rope and he was kicking and struggling in the process of choking to death we rescued him and fetched him around it was some more human nature the admiring little folk imitating their elders they were playing mob and had achieved a success which promised to be a good deal more serious than they had bargained for it was not a dull excursion for me i managed to put in the time very well i made various acquaintanceships and in my quality of stranger was able to ask as many questions as i wanted to a thing which naturally interested me as a statesman was the matter of wages i picked up what i could under that head during the afternoon a man who hasn't had much experience and doesn't think is apt to measure a nation's prosperity or lack of prosperity by the mere size of the prevailing wages if the wages be high the nation is prosperous if low it isn't which is an error it isn't what sum you get it's how much you can buy with it that's the important thing and it's that that tells whether your wages are high in fact or only high in name i could remember how it was in the time of our great civil war in the nineteenth century in the north a carpenter got three dollars a day gold valuation in the south he got fifty payable in confederate shin plasters worth a dollar a bushel in the north a suit of overalls cost three dollars a day's wages in the south it cost seventy-five which was two days wages other things were in proportion consequently wages were twice as high in the north as they were in the south because the one wage had that much more purchasing power than the other had yes i made various acquaintances in the hamlet and a thing that gratified me a good deal was to find our new coins in circulation lots of millrays lots of mills lots of cents a good many nickels and some silver all this among the artisans and commonalty generally yes and even some gold but that was at the bank that is to say the goldsmiths i dropped in there while marco the son of marco was haggling with a shopkeeper over a quarter of a pound of salt and asked for change for a twenty-dollar gold piece they furnished it that is after they had chewed the piece and wrung it on the counter and tried acid on it and asked me where i got it and who i was and where i was from and where i was going to and when i expected to get there and perhaps a couple of hundred more questions and when they got aground i went right on and furnished them a lot of information voluntarily told them i owned a dog and his name was watch and my first wife was a free-will baptist and her grandfather was a prohibitionist and i used to know a man who had two thumbs on each hand and a wart on the inside of his upper lip and died in the hope of a glorious resurrection and so on and so on and so on till even that hungry village questioner began to look satisfied and also a shade put out 
but he had to respect a man of my financial strength and so he didn't give me any lip but i noticed he took it out of his underlings which was a perfectly natural thing to do yes they changed my twenty but i judged it strained the bank a little which was a thing to be expected for it was the same as walking into a paltry village store in the nineteenth century and requiring the boss of it to change a two thousand dollar bill for you all of a sudden he could do it maybe but at the same time he would wonder how a small farmer happened to be carrying so much money around in his pocket which was probably this goldsmith's thought too for he followed me to the door and stood there gazing after me with reverent admiration our new money was not only handsomely circulating but its language was already glibly in use that is to say people had dropped the names of the former monies and spoke of things as being worth so many dollars or cents or mills or millrays now it was very gratifying we were progressing that was sure i got to know several master mechanics but about the most interesting fellow among them was the blacksmith dowley he was a live man and a brisk talker and had two journeymen and three apprentices and was doing a raging business in fact he was getting rich hand over fist and was vastly respected marco was very proud of having such a man for a friend he had taken me there ostensibly to let me see the big establishment which bought so much of his charcoal but really to let me see what easy and almost familiar terms he was on with this great man dowley and i fraternized at once i had had just such picked men splendid fellows under me in the colt arms factory i was bound to see more of him so i invited him to come out to marco's sunday and dine with us marco was appalled and held his breath but when the grandee accepted he was so grateful that he almost forgot to be astonished at the condescension marco's joy was exuberant but only for a moment then he grew thoughtful then sad and when he heard me tell dowley i should have dickon the boss mason and smug the boss wheelwright out there too the coal dust on his face turned to chalk and he lost his grip but i knew what was the matter with him it was the expense he saw ruin before him he judged that his financial days were numbered however on our way to invite the others i said you must allow me to have these friends come and you must also allow me to pay the costs his face cleared and he said with spirit but not all of it not all of it ye cannot well bear a burden like to this alone i stopped him and said now let's understand each other on the spot old friend i am only a farm bailiff it is true but i am not poor nevertheless i have been very fortunate this year you would be astonished to know how i have thriven i tell you the honest truth when i say i could squander away as many as a dozen feasts like this and never care that for the expense and i snapped my fingers i could see myself rise a foot at a time in marco's estimation and when i fetched out those last words i was become a very tower for style and altitude so you see you must let me have my way you can't contribute a cent to this orgy that's settled it's grand and good of you no it isn't you've opened your house to jones and me in the most generous way jones was remarking upon it to-day just before you came back from the village for although he wouldn't be likely to say such a thing to you because jones isn't a talker and is diffident in society he has a good heart and a grateful and knows how to appreciate it 
when he is well treated. Yes, you and your wife have been very hospitable toward us. Ah, brother, tis nothing such hospitality. But it is something. The best a man has freely given is always something, and is as good as a prince can do, and ranks right along beside it, for even a prince can but do his best. And so we'll shop around and get up this layout now, and don't you worry about the expense. I'm one of the worst spendthrifts that ever was born. Why, do you know, sometimes in a single week I spend—but uh, never mind about that. You'd never believe it anyway. And so we went gadding along, dropping in here and there, pricing things, and gossiping with the shopkeepers about the riot, and now and then running across pathetic reminders of it in the persons of shunned and tearful and houseless remnants of families whose homes had been taken from them and their parents butchered or hanged. The raiment of Marco and his wife was of coarse tow-linen and linsey-woolsey respectively, and resembled township maps it being made up pretty exclusively of patches which had been added, township by township, in the course of five or six years, until hardly a hand's breadth of the original garments was surviving and present. Now I wanted to fit these people out with new suits, on account of that swell company, and I didn't know just how to get at it, with delicacy, until at last it struck me that, as I had already been liberal in inventing wordy gratitude for the king, it would be just the thing to back it up with evidence of a substantial sort. So I said, And, Marco, there's another thing which you must permit, out of kindness for Jones, because you wouldn't want to offend him. He was very anxious to testify his appreciation in some way, but he is so diffident he couldn't venture it himself, and so he begged me to buy some little things and give them to you and Dame Phyllis, and let him pay for them, without your ever knowing they came from him. You know how a delicate person feels about that sort of thing. And so I said I would, and we would keep mum. Well, his idea was, a new outfit of clothes for you both. Oh, it is wastefulness. It may not be, brother, it may not be. Consider the vastness of the sum. Hang the vastness of the sum. Try to keep quiet for a moment, and see how it would seem. A body can't get in a word edgewise you talk so much. You ought to cure that, Marco. It isn't good form, you know, and it will grow on you if you don't check it. Yes, we'll step in here now, and price this man's stuff. And don't forget to remember to not let on to Jones that you know he had anything to do with it. You can't think how curiously sensitive and proud he is. He's a farmer, pretty fairly well-to-do farmer, and I'm his bailiff, but the imagination of that man! Why, sometimes when he forgets himself and gets to blowing off, you'd think he was one of the swells of the earth, and you might listen to him a hundred years and never take him for a farmer, especially if he talked agriculture. He thinks he's a sheol of a farmer, thinks he's old grayback from way back, but between you and me privately he don't know as much about farming as he does about running a kingdom. Still, whatever he talks about, you want to drop your underjaw and listen, the same as if you had never heard such incredible wisdom in all your life before, and were afraid you might die before you got enough of it. That will please Jones. It tickled Marco to the marrow to hear about such an odd character, but it also prepared him for accidents. And in my experience, when you travel with a king who is letting on to be something else, and can't remember it more than about half the time, 
you can't take too many precautions this was the best store we had come across yet it had everything in it in small quantities from anvils and dry goods all the way down to fish and pinchbeck jewelry i concluded i would bunch my whole invoice right here and not go pricing around any more so i got rid of marco by sending him off to invite the mason and the wheelwright which left the field free to me for i never care to do thing in a quiet way it's got to be theatrical or i don't take any interest in it i showed up money enough in a careless way to corral the shopkeeper's respect and then i wrote down a list of the things i wanted and handed it to him to see if he could read it he could and was proud to show that he could he said he had been educated by a priest and could both read and write he ran it through and remarked with satisfaction that it was a pretty heavy bill well and so it was for a little concern like that i was not only providing a swell dinner but some odds and ends of extras i ordered that the things be carted out and delivered at the dwelling of marco the son of marco by saturday evening and send me the bill at dinner-time sunday he said i could depend upon his promptness and exactitude it was the rule of the house he also observed that he would throw in a couple of miller guns for the marcos gratis that everybody was using them now he had a mighty opinion of that clever device i said and please fill them up to the middle mark too and add that to the bill he would with pleasure he filled them and i took them with me i couldn't venture to tell him that the miller gun was a little invention of my own and that i had officially ordered that every shopkeeper in the kingdom keep them on hand and sell them at government price which was the merest trifle and the shopkeeper got that not the government we furnished them for nothing the king had hardly missed us when we got back at nightfall he had early dropped again into his dream of a grand invasion of gaul with the whole strength of his kingdom at his back and the afternoon had slipped away without his ever coming to himself again End of chapter 31chapter thirty two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox org a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court chapter thirty two dowley's humiliation well when that cargo arrived toward sunset saturday afternoon i had my hands full to keep the marcos from fainting they were sure jones and i were ruined past help and they blamed themselves as accessories to this bankruptcy you see in addition to the dinner materials which called for a sufficiently round sum i had bought a lot of extras for the future comfort of the family for instance a big lot of wheat a delicacy as rare to the tables of their class as was ice-cream to a hermit's also a sizable deal dinner-table also two entire pounds of salt which was another piece of extravagance in those people's eyes also crockery stools the clothes a small cask of beer and so on i instructed the marcos to keep quiet about this sumptuousness so as to give me a chance to surprise the guests and show off a little concerning the new clothes the simple couple were like children they were up and down all night to see if it wasn't nearly daylight so that they could put them on and they were into them at last as much as an hour before dawn was due then their pleasure not to say delirium was so fresh and novel and inspiring that the sight of it paid me well for the interruptions which my sleep had suffered the king had slept just as usual like the dead 
The Marcos could not thank him for their clothes, that being forbidden, but they tried every way they could think of to make him see how grateful they were, which all went for nothing. He didn't notice any change. It turned out to be one of those rich, rare fall days, which is just a June day toned down to a degree where it is heaven to be out of doors. Toward noon the guests arrived, and we assembled under a great tree, and were soon as sociable as old acquaintances. Even the king's reserve melted a little, though it was some little trouble to him to adjust himself to the name of Jones along at first. I had asked him to try to not forget that he was a farmer, but I had also considered it prudent to ask him to let the thing stand at that, and not elaborate it any, because he was just the kind of person you could depend on to spoil a little thing like that if you didn't warn him, his tongue was so handy, and his spirit so willing, and his information so uncertain. Dowley was in fine feather, and I early got him started, and then adroitly worked him around on to his own history for a text, and himself for a hero, and then it was good to sit there and hear him hum. Self-made man, you know. They know how to talk. They do deserve more credit than any other breed of men, yes, that is true, and they are among the very best to find it out, too. He told how he had begun life an orphan lad without money and without friends able to help him, how he had lived as the slaves of the meanest master lived, how his day's work was from sixteen to eighteen hours long, and yielded him only enough black bread to keep him in a half-fed condition, how his faithful endeavors finally attracted the attention of a good blacksmith, who came near knocking him dead with kindness by suddenly offering, when he was totally unprepared, to take him as his bound apprentice for nine years, and give him board and clothes, and teach him the trade, or mystery, as Dowley called it. That was his first great rise, his first gorgeous stroke of fortune, and you saw that he couldn't yet speak of it without a sort of eloquent wonder and delight, that such a gilded promotion should have fallen to the lot of a common human being. He got no new clothing during his apprenticeship, but on his graduation day his master tricked him out in spang-new tow-linens, and made him feel unspeakably rich and fine. "'I remember me of that day,' the wheelwright sang out with enthusiasm. "'And I likewise,' cried the mason. "'I would not believe they were thine own. In faith I could not.' "'Nor other,' shouted Dowley, with sparkling eyes. "'I was like to lose my character, the neighbor's wending I had mayhap been stealing.' It was a great day, a great day. One forgetteth not days like that. Yes, and his master was a fine man, and prosperous, and always had a great feast of meat twice in the year, and with it white bread, true wheaten bread. In fact, lived like a lord, so to speak. And in time Dowley succeeded to the business, and married the daughter. And now consider what has come to pass, said he impressively. Two times in every month there is fresh meat upon my table. He made a pause here to let that fact sink home, then added, "'And eight times salt meat.' "'It is very true,' said the wheelwright, with bated breath. "'I know it of mine own knowledge,' said the mason, in the same reverent fashion. "'On my table appeareth white bread every Sunday in the year,' added the master smith, with solemnity. "'I leave it to your own consciences, friends, if this is not also true.' "'By my head, yes,' cried the mason. I can testify it, and I do, said the wheelwright. And as to furniture, ye shall say yourselves what mine equipment is. 
he waved his hand in fine gesture of granting frank and unhampered freedom of speech and added speak as ye are moved speak as ye would speak and i were not here ye have five stools and of the sweetest workmanship at that albeit your family is but three said the wheelwright with deep respect and six wooden goblets and six platters of wood and two of pewter to eat and drink from withal said the mason impressively and i say it as knowing god is my judge and we tarry not here alway but must answer at the last day for the things said in the body be they false or be they sooth now ye know what manner of man i am brother jones said the smith with a fine and friendly condescension and doubtless ye would look to find me a man jealous of his due of respect and but sparing of outgo to strangers till their rating and quality be assured but trouble yourself not as concerning that wit ye well ye shall find me a man that regardeth not these matters but is willing to receive any he as his fellow and equal that carrieth a right heart in his body be his worldly estate howsoever modest and in token of it here is my hand and i say with my own mouth we are equals equals and he smiled around on the company with the satisfaction of a god who is doing the handsome and gracious thing and is quite well aware of it the king took the hand with a poorly disguised reluctance and let go of it as willingly as a lady lets go of a fish all of which had a good effect for it was mistaken for an embarrassment natural to one who was being called upon by greatness the dame brought out the table now and set it under the tree it caused a visible stir of surprise it being brand new and a sumptuous article of deal but the surprise rose higher still when the dame with a body oozing easy indifference at every pore but eyes that gave it all away by absolutely flaming with vanity slowly unfolded an actual simon pure tablecloth and spread it that was a notch above even the blacksmith's domestic grandeurs and it hit him hard you could see it but marco was in paradise you could see that too then the dame brought two fine new stools phew that was a sensation it was visible in the eyes of every guest then she brought two more as calmly as she could sensation again with awed murmurs again she brought two walking on air she was so proud the guests were petrified and the mason muttered there is that about earthly pomps which doth ever move to reverence as the dame turned away marco couldn't help slapping on the climax while the thing was hot so he said with what was meant for a languid composure but was a poor imitation of it these suffice uh, leave the rest so there were more yet it was a fine effect i couldn't have played the hand better myself from this out the madam piled up the surprises with a rush that fired the general astonishment up to a hundred and fifty in the shade and at the same time paralyzed expression of it down to gasped ohs and ahs and mute upliftings of hands and eyes she fetched crockery new and plenty of it new wooden goblets and other table furniture and beer fish chicken a goose eggs roast beef roast mutton a ham a small roast pig and a wealth of genuine white wheaten bread take it by and large that spread laid everything far and away in the shade that ever that crowd had seen before and while they sat there just simply stupefied with wonder and awe i sort of waved my hand as if by accident and the storekeeper's son emerged from space and said he had come to collect 
"'That's all right,' I said indifferently. "'What is the amount? Uh, give us the items.' Then he read off this bill, while those three amazed men listened, and serene waves of satisfaction rolled over my soul, and alternate waves of terror and admiration surged over Marcos. Two pounds salt, two hundred. Eight dozen pints beer in the wood, eight hundred. Three bushels wheat, two thousand seven hundred. Three pounds fish, one hundred. Three hens, four hundred. One goose, four hundred. Three dozen eggs, one hundred and fifty. One roast of beef, four hundred and fifty. One roast of mutton, four hundred. One ham, eight hundred. One sucking pig, five hundred. Two crockery dinner sets, six thousand. Two men's suits and underwear, two thousand eight hundred. One stuff and one linsey woolsey gown and underwear, one thousand six hundred. Eight wooden goblets, eight hundred. Various table furniture, ten thousand. One deal table, three thousand. Eight stools, four thousand. Two miller guns loaded, three thousand. He ceased. There was a pale and awful silence. Not a limb stirred. Not a nostril betrayed the passage of breath. "'Is that all?' I asked in a voice of most perfect calmness. "'All, fair sir, save that certain matters of light moment are placed together, under a head height sundries. If it would like you, I will separate—' "'It is of no consequence,' I said, accompanying the words with a gesture of the most utter indifference. "'Give me the grand total, please.' The clerk leaned against the tree to stay himself, and said, Thirty-nine thousand one hundred and fifty milrays. The wheelwright fell off his stool. The others grabbed the table to save themselves, and there was a deep and general ejaculation of, God be with us in the day of disaster. The clerk hastened to say, My father chargeth me to say he cannot honorably require you to pay it all at this time, and therefore only prayeth you— I paid no more heed than if it were the idle breeze, but, with an air of indifference amounting almost to weariness, got out my money and tossed four dollars on the table. Ah, you should have seen them stare! The clerk was astonished and charmed. He asked me to retain one of the dollars as security until he could go to town and—I interrupted. What, and fetch back nine cents? Nonsense! Take the whole! Keep the change! There was an amazed murmur to this effect. Verily, this being is made of money. He throweth away, even as if it were dirt. The blacksmith was a crushed man. The clerk took his money and reeled away drunk with fortune. I said to Marco and his wife, Good folk, here is a little trifle for you, handing the miller-guns as if it were a matter of no consequence, though each of them contained fifteen cents in solid cash, and while the poor creatures went to pieces with astonishment and gratitude, I turned to the others and said as calmly as one would ask the time of day, "'Well, if we are all ready, I judge the dinner is. Come, fall to.' "'Ah, well, it was immense. Yes, it was a daisy. I don't know that I ever put a situation together better, or got happier spectacular effects out of the materials available. The blacksmith, well, he was simply mashed. Land!' I wouldn't have felt what that man was feeling for anything in the world. Here he had been blowing and bragging about his grand meat-feast twice a year, and his fresh meat twice a month, and his salt meat twice a week, and his white bread every Sunday the year round, 
all for a family of three, the entire cost for the year not above 69.2.6, 69 cents, two mills, and six millrays, and all of a sudden here comes along a man who slashes out nearly four dollars on a single blowout, and not only that, but acts as if it made him tired to handle such small sums. Yes, Dowley was a good deal wilted, and shrunk up and collapsed. He had the aspect of a bladder balloon that's been stepped on by a cow. End of chapter 32 This is chapter 33. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 33. Sixth-century political economy. However, I made a dead set at him, and before the first third of the dinner was reached, I had him happy again. It was easy to do, in a country of ranks and castes. You see, in a country where they have ranks and castes, a man isn't ever a man, he is only part of a man. He can't ever get his full growth. You prove your superiority over him in station, or rank, or fortune, and that's the end of it. He knuckles down. You can't insult him after that. No, I don't mean quite that. Of course, you can insult him. I only mean it's difficult, and so, unless you've got a lot of useless time on your hands, it doesn't pay to try. I had the Smith's reverence now, because I was apparently immensely prosperous and rich. I could have had his adoration, if I'd had some little gimcrack title of nobility, and not only his, but any commoners in the land, though he were the mightiest production of all the ages, in intellect, worth, and character, and I bankrupt in all three. This was to remain so as long as England should exist in the earth. With the spirit of prophecy upon me, I could look into the future and see her erect statues and monuments to her unspeakable Georges, and other royal and noble clothes-horses, and leave unhonored the creators of this world, after God Gutenberg, Watt, Arkwright, Whitney, Morse, Stevenson, Bell. The king got his cargo aboard, and then, the talk not turning upon battle, conquest, or iron-clad duel, he dulled down to drowsiness and went off to take a nap. Mrs. Marco cleared the table, placed the beer-keg handy, and went away to eat her dinner of leavings in humble privacy, and the rest of us soon drifted into matters near and dear to the hearts of our sort—business and wages, of course. At a first glance things appeared to be exceeding prosperous in this little tributary kingdom, whose lord was King Bagdemagus, as compared with the state of things in my own region. They had the protection system in full force here, whereas we were working along down toward free trade by easy stages, and were now about halfway. Before long Dowley and I were doing all the talking, the others hungrily listening. Dowley warmed to his work, snuffed an advantage in the air, and began to put questions which he considered pretty awkward ones for me, and they did have something of that look. "'In your country, brother, what is the wage of a master bailiff, master hind, carter, shepherd, swineherd? Twenty-five milrays a day, that is to say, a quarter of a cent.' The smith's face beamed with joy. He said, "'With us they are allowed the double of it.' 
and what may a mechanic get a carpenter dauber mason painter a blacksmith wheelwright and the like on the average fifty milrays half a cent a day ho oh, ho with us they are allowed a hundred with us any good mechanic is allowed a cent a day i count the tailor but not the others they are all allowed a cent a day and in driving times they get more yes up to a hundred and ten and even fifteen milrays a day i've paid a hundred and fifteen myself within the week hurrah for protection tis she all with free trade and his face shone upon the company like a sunburst but i didn't scare at all i rigged up my pile-driver and allowed myself fifteen minutes to drive him into the earth drive him all in drive him in till not even the curve of his skull should show above ground here's the way i started in on him i asked what do you pay a pound for salt a hundred milrays we pay forty what do you pay for beef and mutton when you buy it that was a neat hit it made the color come it uh, varieth somewhat uh, but not much one may say seventy-five milrays the pound we pay thirty-three what do you pay for eggs fifty milrays the dozen we pay twenty what do you pay for beer it costeth us eight and one-half milrays the pint we get it for four twenty-five bottles for a cent what do you pay for wheat at the rate of uh, nine hundred milrays the bushel we pay four hundred what do you pay for a man's tow-linen suit thirteen cents we pay six what do you pay for a stuff gown for the wife of the laborer or the mechanic we pay eight cents four mills well observe the difference you pay eight cents and four mills we pay only four cents i prepared now to sock it to him i said look here dear friend what's become of your high wages you were bragging so about a few minutes ago and i looked around on the company with placid satisfaction for i had slipped up on him gradually and tied him hand and foot you see without his ever noticing that he was being tied at all what's become of those noble high wages of yours i seem to have knocked the stuffing all out of them it appears to me but if you will believe me he merely looked surprised that is all he didn't grasp the situation at all didn't know he had walked into a trap didn't discover that he was in a trap i could have shot him for sheer vexation with cloudy eye and a struggling intellect he fetched this out marry i seem not to understand it is proved that our wages be double thine how then may it be that thou'st knocked therefrom the stuffing and miscall not the wonderly word this being the first time under grace and providence of god it hath been granted me to hear it well i was stunned partly with this unlooked-for stupidity on his part and partly because his fellows so manifestly sided with him and were of his mind if you might call it mind my position was simple enough plain enough how could it ever be simplified more however i must try why look here brother dowley don't you see your wages are merely higher than ours in name not in fact hear him they are the double you have confessed it yourself yes yes i don't deny that at all but that's got nothing to do with it the amount of the wages in mere coins with meaningless names attached to them to know them by has got nothing to do with it the thing is 
how much can you buy with your wages that's the idea while it is true that with you a good mechanic is allowed about three dollars and a half a year and with us only about a dollar and seventy-five there you're confessing it again you're confessing it again confound it i've never denied it i tell you what i say is this with us half a dollar buys more than a dollar buys with you and therefore it stands to reason and the commonest kind of common sense that our wages are higher than yours he looked dazed and said despairingly verily i cannot make it out you've just said ours are the higher and with the same breath you take it back oh great scott isn't it possible to get such a simple thing through your head now look here let me illustrate we pay four cents for a woman's stuff gown you pay eight point four point zero which is four mills more than double what do you allow a laboring woman who works on a farm two mills a day very good we allow but half as much we pay her only a tenth of a cent a day and again you're conf wait now you see the thing is very simple this time you'll understand it for instance it takes your woman forty-two days to earn her gown at two mills a day seven weeks worth but ours earns hers in forty days two days short of seven weeks your woman has a gown and her whole seven weeks wages are gone ours has a gown and two days wages left to buy something else with there now you understand it he looked well he merely looked dubious it's the most i can say so did the others i waited to let the thing work dowley spoke at last and betrayed the fact that he actually hadn't gotten away from his rooted and grounded superstitions yet he said with a trifle of hesitancy but uh, but you cannot fail to grant that two mills a day is better than one shucks well of course i hated to give it up so i chanced another flyer let us suppose a case suppose one of your journeymen goes out and buys the following articles one pound of salt one dozen eggs one dozen pints of beer one bushel of wheat one tow linen suit five pounds of beef five pounds of mutton the lot will cost him thirty-two cents it takes him thirty-two working days to earn the money five weeks and two days let him come to us and work thirty-two days at half the wages he can buy all those things for a shade under fourteen and a half cents they will cost him a shade under twenty-nine days work and he will have about a half a week's wages over carry it through the year he would save nearly a week's wages every two months your man nothing thus saving five or six weeks wages in a year your man not a cent now i reckon you understand that high wages and low wages are phrases that don't mean anything in the world until you find out which of them will buy the most it was a crusher but alas it didn't crush no i had to give it up what those people valued was high wages didn't seem to be a matter of any consequence to them whether the high wages would buy anything or not 
they stood for protection and swore by it which was reasonable enough because interested parties had gulled them into the notion that it was protection which had created their high wages i proved to them that in a quarter of a century their wages had advanced but thirty per cent while the cost of living had gone up one hundred and that with us in a shorter time wages had advanced forty per cent while the cost of living had gone steadily down but it didn't do any good nothing could unseat their strange beliefs well i was smarting under a sense of defeat undeserved defeat but what of that that didn't soften the smart any and to think of the circumstances the first statesman of the age the capablest man the best informed man in the entire world the loftiest uncrowned head that had moved through the clouds of any political firmament for centuries sitting here apparently defeated in argument by an ignorant country blacksmith and i could see that those others were sorry for me which made me blush till i could smell my whiskers scorching put yourself in my place feel as mean as i did as ashamed as i felt wouldn't you have struck below the belt to get even yes you would it is simply human nature well that is what i did i am not trying to justify it i am only saying that i was mad and anybody would have done it well when i make up my mind to hit a man i don't plan out a love tap no that isn't my way as long as i am going to hit him at all i am going to hit him a lifter and i don't jump at him all of a sudden and risk making a blundering halfway business of it no i get away off yonder to one side and work up on him gradually so that he never suspects that i'm going to hit him at all and by and by all in a flash he's flat on his back and he can't tell for the life of him how it all happened that is the way i went for brother dowley i started to talking lazy and comfortable as if i was just talking to pass the time and the oldest man in the world couldn't have taken the bearings of my starting-place and guessed where i was going to fetch up boys there's a good many curious things about law and custom and usage and all that sort of thing when you come to look at it yes and about the drift and progress of human opinion and movement too there are written laws they perish but there are also unwritten laws they are eternal take the unwritten law of wages it says they've got to advance little by little straight through the centuries and notice how it works we know what wages are now here and there and yonder we strike an average and say that's the wages of today we know what the wages were a hundred years ago and what they were two hundred years ago that's as far back as we can get but it suffices to give us the law of progress the measure and rate of the periodical augmentation and so without a document to help us we can come pretty close to determining what the wages were three and four and five hundred years ago good so far do we stop there no we stop looking backward we face around and apply the law to the future my friends i can tell you what people's wages are going to be at any date in the future you want to know for hundreds and hundreds of years what good man what yes in seven hundred years wages will have risen to six times what they are now here in your region and farm hands will be allowed three cents a day and mechanics six 
"'Why wouldn't I might die now and live then?' interrupted Smug, the wheelwright, with a fine avaricious glow in his eye. "'And that isn't all. They'll get their board besides. Such as it is, it won't bloat them. Two hundred and fifty years later—pay attention now—a mechanic's wages will be—mind you, this is law, not guesswork—a mechanic's wages will then be twenty cents a day.' There was a general gasp of awed astonishment. Dick and the Mason murmured, with raised eyes and hands, "'More than three weeks' pay for one day's work!' "'Riches! Of a truth, yes, riches!' muttered Marco, his breath coming quick and short with excitement. "'Wages will keep on rising, little by little, little by little, as steadily as a tree grows, and at the end of three hundred and forty years more there'll be at least one country where the mechanic's average wage will be two hundred cents a day. It knocked them absolutely dumb. Not a man of them could get his breath for upwards of two minutes. Then the coal-burner said prayerfully, "'Might I but live to see it!' "'It is the income of an earl,' said Smug. "'An earl, say ye,' said Dowley. Ye could say more than that, and speak no lie. There's no earl in the realm of Bagdemagus that hath an income like to that. Income of an earl? <laughs> it's the income of an angel. Now, then, that is what is going to happen as regards wages. In that remote day, that man will earn, with one week's work, that bill of goods which it takes you upwards of fifty weeks to earn now. Some other pretty surprising things are going to happen, too. Brother Dowley, who is it that determines every spring what the particular wage of each kind of mechanic, laborer, and servant shall be for that year? Sometimes the courts, sometimes the town council, but most of all the magistrate. You may say, in general terms, it is the magistrate that fixes the wages. Doesn't ask any of those poor devils to help him fix their wages for them, does he? Hmm, that were an idea. The master that's to pay him the money is the one that's rightly concerned in that matter, you will notice. Yes, but I thought the other man might have some little trifle at stake in it, too, and even his wife and children, poor creatures. The masters are these, nobles, rich men, the prosperous, generally. These few who do no work determine what pay the vast hive shall have who do work. You see? They're a combine, a trade union, to coin a new phrase, who band themselves together to force their lowly brother to take what they choose to give. Thirteen hundred years hence, so says the unwritten law, the combine will be the other way, and then how these fine people's posterity will fume and fret and grit their teeth over the insolent tyranny of trade unions. Yes, indeed, the magistrate will tranquilly arrange the wages from now clear away down into the nineteenth century, and then all of a sudden the wage-earner will consider that a couple of thousand years or so is enough of this one-sided sort of thing, and he will rise up and take a hand in fixing his wages himself. Ah, uh, he will have a long and bitter account of wrong and humiliation to settle. Do you believe that he actually will help to fix his own wages? Yes, indeed and he will be strong and able, then. Brave times, brave times of a truth, sneered the prosperous smith. Oh, and uh, there's another detail. In that day a master may hire a man for only just one day, or one week, or one month at a time, if he wants to. 
What? It's true. Moreover, a magistrate won't be able to force a man to work for a master a whole year on a stretch, whether the man wants to or not. Will there be no law or sense in that day? Both of them, Dowley. In that day a man will be his own property, not the property of magistrate and master. And he can leave town whenever he wants to, if the wages don't suit him, and they can't put him in the pillory for it. "'Perdition! Catch such an age!' shouted Dowley, in strong indignation. "'An age of dogs! An age barren of reverence for superiors and respect for authority! The pillory—' "'Oh, wait, brother! Say no good word for that institution. I think the pillory ought to be abolished. A most strange idea. Why?' "'Well, I'll tell you why. Is a man ever put in the pillory for a capital crime?' "'No.' is it right to condemn a man to a slight punishment for a small offence and then kill him there was no answer i had scored my first point for the first time the smith wasn't up and ready the company noticed it good effect you don't answer brother you were about to glorify the pillory a while ago and shed some pity on a future age that isn't going to use it i think the pillory ought to be abolished what usually happens when a poor fellow is put in the pillory for some little offence that didn't amount to anything in the world. The mob try to have some fun with him, don't they? Yes. They begin by clodding him, and they laugh themselves to pieces to see him try to dodge one clod and get hit with another. Yes. Then they throw dead cats at him, don't they? Yes. Well, then, suppose he has a few personal enemies in that mob, and here and there a man or a woman with a secret grudge against him, and suppose especially that he is unpopular in the community, for his pride or his prosperity or one thing or another. Stones and bricks take the place of clods and cats presently, don't they? Oh, there is no doubt of it. As a rule he is crippled for life, isn't he? Jaws broken, teeth smashed out or legs mutilated, gangrened, presently cut off, or an eye knocked out, maybe both eyes. It is true, God knoweth it. And if he is unpopular he can depend on dying right there in the stocks, can't he? He surely can. One may not deny it. I take it none of you are unpopular, by reason of pride or insolence or conspicuous prosperity or any of those things that excite envy and malice among the base scum of a village, you wouldn't think it much of a risk to take a chance in the stocks?" Dowley winced visibly. I judged he was hit. But he didn't betray it by any spoken word. As for the others, they spoke out plainly and with strong feeling. They said they had seen enough of the stocks to know what a man's chance in them was, and they would never consent to enter them if they could compromise on a quick death by hanging. Well, to change the subject, for I think I've established my point that the stocks ought to be abolished, I think some of our laws are pretty unfair. For instance, if I do a thing which ought to deliver me to the stocks, and you know I did it, and yet keep still and don't report me, you will get the stocks if anybody informs on you. Ah, but that would serve you but right, said Dowley, for you must inform, so saith the law. The others coincided. Well, all right, let it go, since you vote me down. But there's one thing which certainly isn't fair. The magistrate fixes a mechanic's wage at one cent a day, for instance. The law says that if any master shall venture, even under utmost press of business, to pay anything over that cent a day, even for a single day, 
he shall be both fined and pilloried for it and whoever knows he did it and doesn't inform they also shall be fined and pilloried now it seems to me unfair dowley and a deadly peril to all of us that because you thoughtlessly confessed a while ago that within a week you have paid a cent and fifteen mil oh i tell you it was a smasher you ought to have seen them to go to pieces the whole gang i had just slipped up on poor smiling and complacent dowley so nice and easy and softly that he never suspected anything was going to happen till the blow came crashing down and knocked him all to rags a fine effect in fact as fine as any i ever produced with so little time to work it up in but i saw in a moment that i had overdone the thing a little i was expecting to scare them but i wasn't expecting to scare them to death they were mighty near it though you see they had been a whole lifetime learning to appreciate the pillory and to have that thing staring them in the face and every one of them distinctly at the mercy of me a stranger if i chose to go and report well it was awful and they couldn't seem to recover from the shock they couldn't seem to pull themselves together pale shaky dumb pitiful why they weren't any better than so many dead men it was very uncomfortable of course i thought they would appeal to me to keep mum and then we would shake hands and take a drink all round and laugh it off and there an end but no you see i was an unknown person among a cruelly oppressed and suspicious people a people always accustomed to having advantage taken of their helplessness and never expecting just or kind treatment from any but their own families and very closest intimates appealed to me to be gentle to be fair to be generous of course they wanted to but they couldn't dare end of chapter thirty three at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day to find out more visit parker.com purpose parker engineering your success everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.